Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1266, entitled With a Whimper. Our podcast title today is Down Podoscope. Good reason for that, we're talking about submarines today, well, actually not a bad place to be on a warm day like today, although it's not actually hot in the sense of the novel that we will be talking about, where it's a measure of radioactivity. Now, we've started out today with When the Wind Blows, which is David Bowie, of course, from the soundtrack of the 1986 British animated nuclear holocaust film directed by Jimmy Murakimi, based on Raymond Briggs' comic book of the same name. So I thought I'd um, just start off with a little bit of a mood opener for Zero G for today. I am Rob Jan and I'm Jan Solo today. Megan McHugh, our co-host, is away on personal business and we wish her well and say, mind how you go today, Megan. Very challenging day for you. Now, Neville Shute's book, On the Beach, was published in 1957. It postulated a global nuclear war in the 1960s, which rendered the Northern Hemisphere uninhabited due to high fallout radiation. It was a very short war, days rather than months, but 4,000-odd warheads were exploded, including some cobalt-jacketed bombs, which we have encountered before in Zero-G in the context of Planet of the Apes and Dr. Strangelove, very high radiation weapons which were designed to kill as many people as possible. In the story, the USS Scorpion, an attack submarine, as far as I can tell from the the book, um, was on patrol and survived the war and ended up docked at Williamstown in Melbourne, Australia. And of course, Neville Shute lived in Australia for quite some time, so this is a very personal story for him. Tasked with reconnaissance missions up north, the submarine had to investigate radiation levels and a mysterious radio signal from the... Uh, west coast of the United States. The captain, Commander Dwight Towers, had to deal with fallout of his own, the deaths of his family during the short war, amongst other things. And still the radiation creeps southwards from the contaminated northern hemisphere. So even the people in Australia and New Zealand and so on are on borrowed time. There's nowhere to run with suicide capsules, the only option. This book was made into a film in 1959 with Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire. That's the Stanley Kramer movie. And then it was fairly indifferently made, remade in 2000 in a miniseries with Armand Asante and Rachel Ward and Brian Brown. I thought they tried, but, you know. And there is, of course, a, a fairly good um, full cast audio dramatisation from the BBC that came out in 2008. Now... The book has been reprinted now, reissued from text publishing, and it's got a new introduction by Melbourne writer and journalist Gideon Haig, who we have in the studio today. Hello, Rob. G'day. And um, 
and welcome aboard the uh, the HMAS zero G for today. <laughs> so we're hoping that we will survive the post Holocaust annihilation of on the beach. I think we will. So Gideon, I have to confess that um, I had read. I've read me being me. Mm-hmm. I've read precisely none of your books about cricket. That's right. <laughs> that makes a lot of you. Because <laughs> it's, it's the, mm. uh, the undiscovered country of sports, and which is not really my field. <laughs> but, but I do have the, uh, the glorious, the encyclopedia. Ah, excellent. So that's where it gets weird, right. and that's sort of zero-G territory. Okay. Well, my career is kind of on... On of, the beach? On, on, well, it's on, <laughs> it's on sort of uh, horizontal and vertical axes, yeah. if you like. I know a, a lot about a little... And a little about a lot. And science fiction is, is an area that I've... I read it as a child and I've always been interested in the history of it. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and as a, as a literary genre, a genre that's kind of always looked slightly down upon, perhaps in the same way as sports journalism. Not uh, in the 21st century. No, maybe not, maybe it's, not. It's mainstream now. Yeah. But it, certainly in 1957, when Neville Shute wrote this book, uh-huh. it was unusual for a writer like him to turn his talents to a, to a scenario like this. He was a classic sort of middle-brow, middle-class novelist of, of ideas. Uh, this book resembles well, perhaps one of his previous books, but none of the others. Now, he wrote 23 novels, and he sold something like 40 million books in the course of his career. So for him to take on an issue like a nuclear apocalypse was to genuinely introduce it for the first time, perhaps, to a, to a mass audience, a mass reading audience. Uh-huh. And that, I think, is what underpins my argument that this might well be the most important Australian book of all time. It may be one of the most important books ever written. Indeed, indeed, and set in Melbourne. And set in Melbourne at the very moment when, for all sorts of reasons, it's the most important place on earth Mm. at the very moment of its greatest kind of helplessness and and isolation. It's the last place on earth. Mm. So it, uh, it makes provocative use of that cultural distance that we and geographical distance that we have from the rest of the world it rather reverses it when you think about it, does. it. usually melbourne is the, is the most the farthest place from the uh, the bright center of the universe but in this case it's the place people want to be indeed and um as well, it was in the context of the filming of on the beach that uh, that ava garden uttered her famous apocryphal line mm. that melbourne was a great place to make a film about the end of the world Ap- apocryphally Apocalyptic, apocryphy, apocalyptic, <laughs> so, and apparently it was uh, Neil Gillett, the uh, the Age reporter, made it up at the time. But it's oh. it's uh, it's something that's really stuck to Melbourne. Well, I don't know. Nineteen sixties in Melbourne, like on a Sunday, yeah, <laughs> in the CBD. I got to say, it was pretty damn well. Interestingly, deserted. When Neville Shute first came to Australia in 1948, he flew his private plane out from England. Uh-huh. He was, we might go into this later, he's a very successful aerospace engineer in addition to, uh, to being a popular novelist. And the day that he arrived in Melbourne was a Sunday and he was staying at the Melbourne Club. Oh. And I think he, you know, he literally sort of walked out into the street to see nothing. what was going on and there was nothing. <laughs> so I kind of think that his first sort of exposure to Melbourne perhaps influenced his envisioning of it as a, as a scenario. He could see the empty streets, which, yeah. of course, are the, the final scenes of the movie of, oh. uh, of, uh, of, of On the Beach, those very memorable seasons with, the, uh, with uh, all those familiar landmarks completely isolated and devoid of, uh, of, of human beings. 
Well, yes, there's a very strong sense of place, obviously, in the film because we can see the locations, uh, but in the book as well, he's very, uh, Neville shoots very coy in the book. Um, like he substitutes uh, a place for, called Falmouth for yes. Frankston. Yes, yes. Uh, and um, he invents an island uh, off the coast of uh, California, sorry, off, off Seattle mm. uh, called Santa Maria, which is actually a place on the coast, but it's not where he's, mm. he's got it. Mm. So it's kind mm. of like, um, I, I guess, why would he be doing that, trying not to... Well, he, actually, he also uses proper place names. Yeah. Uh, he wrote the book in Lang Warren. Yeah. Um, shoot, just to, just to um, uh, explain, came from England in 1950. He decided mm. that he liked the look of the country and uh, he felt that Britain's future was, was clouded. Uh, he was a very successful novelist. He found that a lot of his income was being uh, eaten up by punitive rates of taxation. <laughs> uh, so he thought, well, you know, Australia looks like the new frontier. So he was an inpatriate, if you like. You know, we're familiar with the context of Australian artists vanishing overseas because the country doesn't appreciate them. He was a Briton who came to Australia because he saw this as a land of, of possibilities. He settled on a 200-acre property down at Lang Warren. He built his own house. It's um, it's the house still stands a remarkable house. It still bears very much his his handiwork. It just sold for two Is in two thousand and nineteen for one point six million dollars. Well, when I wrote this piece, when I wrote the fort, I went and stayed down there for a night, and it's been done up as a B and B. It's got posters oh. of Neville Shute movies all up in the uh, in the in sure. the guest bedroom, and I went into the study where Shute apparently did all his writing in the in the mornings. He used uh-huh. to revert to a gentleman farmer in the afternoon. And it was actually where he died as well, because he died in the process of writing his final novel, a book called Incident at Eucla, of which he'd written 30 pages. The, the, um, the, the manuscript actually survives in the National Library. He'd actually reached the end of a sentence, you know, put down his pen and had a massive stroke and, wow. uh, and dropped dead there and then. It wasn't long after the movie came out. That's right. That's mm. right. He'd only just come to terms with the movie. He wasn't terribly happy no. about it. Um, I, I can see why the, the book has a, a very... Um, uh, almost rigidly noble yes, um, yes. commanded uh, towers the the american sub uh, captain he he's 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 mourning his family but he's yes. not as well he's compartmentalized them he's sealed them up as yes, being has. sort of alive in his head yes so he doesn't have an affair with uh, uh, Moira, Moira Moira Davidson yeah but in the film he he does yes yes well it's it's implied in a very kind yeah, of heavy-handed yeah. way but that was that was shoot. That that this was characteristic of his novels. He put ordinary people in extraordinary situations mm. and challenged them to respond. And in this case, it was the most extraordinary situation of all: the prospect of imminent uh, destruction for the entirety of humanity. Mm. And he put Except them to the test, and they come through it nobly. And that's one of the reasons why the novel is so successful. It's so engaging. It puts you in their mm. shoes, in the shoes of the the these this dwindling band of survivors, and asks you, how would you respond under these circumstances? Well, the, the thing about the novel is it starts out so mundanely you'd scarcely know that anything was wrong. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. The really, uh, there is a stealthy and gathering sense of, of dread about it. Mm. And, the, and the information that, that you imparted at the top of the show about the the, the, the war that's taken place is only gradually dropped into the mm. into the course of the novel. Spoilers. And it's discussed <laughs> almost by the way. And the dialogue, the dialogue is quite sort of trite and insubstantial yeah. because it is people literally killing time mm. um, before time kills them. Oh, yes, of course. Um, the procedural 
that shoots uh, achieved the level of procedural in this um, really not not exactly being the, the pioneer of post-apocalyptic mm. procedural because there's a lot of other yeah, uh, sure. science fiction apocalypses before then. But this is one of the first big nuclear holocaust yes. ones. And the level he's achieved in that is quite impressive. Yes. And, and I, I liken it to the fact that he's done it in such a matter-of-fact way. And it reminds me very much of um, the work of J.E. MacDonald, one of yeah, uh, Australia's right. yes. World War yes. II yeah. Yeah. Uh, war novel writers yes. who did a lot of Navy stuff. Yes. And in fact, the title on the beach means just retired from That's the Navy. That's right, yes, yes. Um, that mun- mundanity at the start, everybody's on bicycles and horse transport yes. because back then, well, I don't think we were um, getting our own oil. Actually, we must have been. We must have been getting some... Refining some, some, but it was oil. rationed. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a scenario like the Second World War where, where rationing is taking place. Yeah. And in some respects, this is a, it's not a sequel, but, um, but it's, a, uh, it's a, an updating of a book that, uh, that Shoot wrote in 1938 called uh-huh. What Happened to the Corbetts. Ah, it's, yeah. That's a book about um, uh, imminent Second World War and the possibility of strategic bombing on civilian population, which was something, once again, another taboo subject that, that Shoot ventured into. And it follows the fortunes of an ordinary family um, trying to stay one step ahead of, uh, of, of German bombing. Uh, he up, shoot updates it in on the beach to the, you know, the ultimate bombing, but again, once again, conventional people being placed in an extraordinary situation, mm. uh, and you know, they respond with a, a similar nobility and forbearance to the Corbetts, but of course, it's completely futile. And also, a, a remarkable um, adaptive behaviour in Australia. Um, Cutting up cars, yeah, putting yeah, uh, yeah. it's almost a Mad Max sort of thing, but a lot slower. Yes, so they, yes, they, it they is. put horses in in front of their cars. Yes. They, they everybody's on bicycles, and it's one of the striking images from the film. Actually, that they do get right. Uh, Burke Street full of people on bicycles mm, and mm. horses. And, and of course, there's that final that that final amazing scene for, set at Phillip Island Raceway, mm. where people are taking the opportunity to race their cars as fast as they can possibly go mm. uh, in a kind of a race where, you know, it's almost pointless to survive. Uh, in the film, it's Fred Astaire who, who takes his, uh, his car out there. But, um, but Shoot, in order to research those scenes, actually invested in his own Jaguar XK140. Oh, just research, to, was it? Just research. <laughs> well, I think he – just to, uh, interestingly, you know – Shute was not a well man at the yeah. time that he that he wrote this book. He'd had a heart attack in uh, in London in 1955, and so he was writing a um uh, a sort of a, a a global memento mori for for the fact for from the man who had recently suffered uh, a, a foretelling of the uh, of the imminence of death. Yes. So in in sort of in the in a celebration of his survival, he bought himself this car, this very unique mark. Uh, and raced it at Phillip Island Raceway, not particularly fast, but he wanted to know what it felt like to race in a in a in a in a um, scenario like that. And uh, I actually got the opportunity to sit in that very car. Oh, really? Which was um, which was subsequently it still bought. exists. Yeah, it's uh, it's owned by a um, by a fellow called Best Overend, who uh-huh. is a um, who's a the son of a prominent Melbourne architect, who was a friend of uh, Neville Shute. And uh, and bought it from uh, fr- from his estate. It's a very very handsome car yeah. indeed. And when I was doing the piece, I I toured all around that area, um, Falmouth, which is actually Frankston under a, under a, under another guise. The railway there station's are, been rebuilt. Yeah, <laughs> and there are there are there but there are identifiable landmarks that he sure. refers to in the in the in the book, 
which gave it a sense of uh, of real veracity and real um, real intimacy. Oh. Uh, you, know, it, you can you the, the the sheer commonplaceness of the content of this book creates such a tension with the extremity of its uh, of the situation it's describing that. It's, I think it really does resonate down the, uh, down the decades. One of the reasons, because I read this, my particular copy is from 1974, so I would have read it round about there sometime. Uh, I'd probably seen the uh, Stanley Kramer mm. film. And just walking, I could walk down um, uh, Elizabeth Street now. I, I know the muse mm. where uh, the scientist character Osborne kept his... Yes. Um, his car, yes, yes, in the in where the yes. old sort of motor section yep. was, and I can look up and see the uh, uh, the cat advertisement on the side of um, mm. the beehive building that's in the film. Yes, yes, then. and of uh, course you can walk past the old Melbourne Museum. Sure, yeah, where they're holding where at one stage they're holding a rally, a religious rally, and then of course afterwards we see it um, wind blown and uh, and empty. It's a state library nowadays, mm. of course, and. Um, other places like uh, Flinders Street Station, mm. uh, a, a, a place um, in the film. Uh, it's a. It must be down near Frankston or something where they're they're, they're, they're yachting. They're, yes, well, that's still there. Yeah. That's still there. They, they they filmed at the local yacht club of which yeah. Neville Shute was a was a member. Uh, and uh, um, Peter Holmes, the Lieutenant Peter Holmes, who's uh, the Royal Australian Naval Liaison mm. with um, Towers and his submarine. Um, <laughs> he he goes to Williamstown and uh, Dwight says, "Oh, where do you live?" And he says, "Oh, I'm down in Frankston. It's about uh, three quarters of an hour by electric train from the city." I think, "Geez, that's doing well." Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Mm. Are we living in the post-apocalyptic world now? <laughs> um, this was the thing. Uh, everyone's on bicycles and with horse transport. Um, that was the mid twentieth uh, century herald mm. of the apocalypse. You often see that in sort of different yes, movies. Yeah. In the 21st century, it's the mobile phone network goes down and everyone loses access to their social media. <laughs> uh, most recently in the British science fiction drama, Years and Years, you, you know that the, uh, mm. the doomsday clock's close to midnight when Donald Trump gets a second term. <laughs> so it's like we've got this sort of, these are the, uh, the things that tell mm. us that the apocalypse is upon yes. us. Although interestingly, in uh, in 1957, when when Sh- when Shute wrote this book, it was not a subject that was freely discussed. It was not uh, no. an area of common parlance. Uh, people had seen Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it was almost as though the circumstances of those and the consequences were so shocking that we really didn't want to address them. We no. were, of course, Australia was perfectly happy to host uh, nuclear testing, British nuclear testing, in its own landmass. Uh, and you know, the Cold War was intense, but it wasn't perhaps review analysed as a prelude to the possible end of the world. Mm. It's around about that period, thanks partly to to On the Beach, that that subject comes more firmly into view. Yes, we, we should get into that, the actual impact of the novel, perhaps upon world affairs. Mm, yeah. uh, we'll play a track, uh, 99 Luft Balloons, the old version from Nina, um, Clearly, I'm playing this track since we're in an, apoc- an apocalyptic mode here. Uh, this is um, from 1983. And it tells a story about some uh, red balloons, the Luft balloons, mm. which are drifting across near the, um, the East German, West German border mm. during the Cold mm. War, possibly triggering a war. Yes, yes. Up on the radar. And there was actually... Um, an event in uh, 1983 where a Soviet early warning system operator called Stanislav Petrov 
um, he saw a, uh, a nuclear attack alarm and it actually came from clouds, not balloons. Yes, right. And uh, he said, no, this is not right. And that may have um, prevented a nuclear war. One of the many, many incidences of, uh, in history when we come very, very close yes, by yes. accident. Yes. So we'll play that track right now. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Hmm. Here we are, back again on Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio. Rob Jan here talking to Gideon Haig, who has written the introduction to a new edition of the classic Neville shoot, post-apocalyptic science fiction novel on the beach. We will hope that it remains science fiction. Mm. Mm. So we were just playing there with uh, Nina and 99, Luftballons, which is, the, of course, the, uh, the song that is essentially about an accidental nuclear mm. war. And we've some, come so close over the, over the years, uh, especially in the, um, the 60s and the 70s, mm. but also in the 80s, just yes. before the Cold War ended. We came very close to the edge of disaster. Yes. Although, interestingly, the, the, the Cold War angle of this book isn't played up. No. It's, um, it's, it's a novel of nuclear proliferation where it's specifically, it's, I think it's talked about as a sort of a regional incident in the Middle East mm. that precipitates the involvement of the superpowers rather than a head-for-head kind of tit-for-tat um, scenario. I so it's very, very strongly related to, to the situation of the current day where mm. you know, more countries than ever have access to nuclear arsenals. I tried to unpick that because I, I took notes last time I read mm. uh, On the Beach and I was trying to unpick it. There's like... Um, uh, an incident uh, between Albania, um, the Americans uh, threaten the Egyptians, mm. the Egyptians send um, a bombing force to Washington. Yes. And these are Soviet planes that they're flying, yes. so the Americans think yes. it's the Russians and there's a, a Sino-Soviet uh, yes. war. And, and the political leaders are killed very early mm. in the war and it's the, the, most of the weapons are fired off by underlings who are simply mindlessly following or the orders that they've been set and there's no one around to countermand them. In, um, in the, uh, the 2000 uh, miniseries adaptation of On the Beach, they actually made the submarine commander, Dwight Towers, the man who stopped the war. He, he, his submarines are what they call a boomer, not a, right. not a baby boomer, although pretty close. <laughs> okay, boomer, um, but a missile submarine, and he decides to not fire his missiles and add to the, the destruction. So it's an interesting... Oh, they, 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 God. They that's, had, that's filming on the beach without having the courage to see it through, yeah, really, isn't yeah. it? They had to try... I see what they did. I understand what they did. They've obviously watched the, uh, the Stanley Kramer yeah. movie and, and read the book. I'll give them that. Mm. <laughs> they've done all that and they've said, how do we make this different? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that yeah. doesn't always work. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And the um, the the scenarios that, that shoot conjures up are powerful because of their restraint. Yes. Because there's nothing fancy about no. this book. He just sets the plot in motion and sees it through. Mm. There's no flashbacks. There's no digressions. There's no real backstory about any of the characters. Everything everything is dealt with on the surface of things. And in, in most scenarios in a novel, you would think you would find that deeply unsatisfying. But it's the fact that everyone gets together 
and kind of colludes in the universal fantasy, like the possibility that there will be another year, mm. like the the the, um, uh, the the RAN officer planning his garden mm. for the for the following year. You know what plants will will um, will he plant? knowing that he won't be around to see them. And one of the farmers is building a fence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. And but, but at those moments where, where the disaster protrudes um, are that much more intense as mm. a result. The, the scene, the, uh, the, the section in the book, uh, Peter, as you were saying, Peter Holmes, the, uh, yes. the uh, Royal Australian Navy liaison officer, he, he has a, a young wife and a, an infant child and the scene where he has to explain to his wife about the suicide capsules yes. and that she yes. may have to kill their child. Yes. I, I, I cannot read that without tearing yeah. up every well, time. Why don't I read it right now? I believe you can, that you can pop out of the room while I do it. Yeah, but it's I might a, have it's to. A, it's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Let me get this straight, she said, and now there was an edge in her voice. Are you trying to tell me what I've got to do to kill Jennifer. He knew that there was trouble coming, but he had to face it. That's right, he said. If it becomes necessary, you'll have to do it. She flared suddenly into anger. I think you're crazy, she exclaimed. I'd never do a thing like that. However ill she was, I'd nurse her to the end. You must be absolutely mad. The trouble is that you don't love her. You've never loved her. She's always been a nuisance to you. Well, she's not a nuisance to me. It's you that's the nuisance. And now it's reached the stage that you're trying to tell me how to murder her. She got to her feet white with rage. If you say one more word, I'll murder you. Oh, it's it's yeah. affecting. And the um, the actual scene where, of course... and. I feel justified in spoil- spoilers. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the scene where he actually goes, fr- they actually have to go through with it. Mm. It just it just wrecks you every yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite well handled in the um, in the Stanley Kramer yes, movie. Yes. Uh, and in the um, the uh, the two thousand miniseries as mm. well. Um, I think that's something that everyone just cleaves to, and they, yes. they can't get past that. Yes. Uh, so yeah, why, why now? Why is um, I mean, you know, we're in the we're in the cusp of global warming, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, apocalyptic bushfires, uh, intense, intensified chance mm. of international conflict under mm. our lunatic leaders, mm. and uh, with the climate change causing uh, more, giving more reason for international strife. Mm. Actually, I just answered my question, didn't I? <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I originally wrote. Um wrote this piece because it was the 50th anniversary of the of the book coming out this back in 2007 mm-hmm. and I'd encountered it in a um, in a book called Voices Prophesying War by a, a British writer called IF Clark which is a survey of of apocalyptic futures and it said that um, you know on the beach stood out for having the courage of its convictions the courage mm. to see the idea through you know most most post post apocalyptic fictions conjure with the idea that somehow People will survive to build a new world in the wreckage of the of the old. Yeah. But shoot actually just annihilates everyone and leaves the earth uh, infertile and irradiated, floating in space and, and temporarily in the hands of the rabbits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the paws of the rabbits. Yes. Because they they are slightly more radiation resistant. In in recent times, um, uh, some uh, physicists and so on have uh, had a look at the the 
the atomic physics of, mm, on the yeah, beach and, yeah. and said, well, mate, this is not exactly what no, would happen. No. But then again, they are, he is actually talking about a fairly exotic type of bomb, the cobalt-jacketed yes, yes. ones, which don't actually exist as no, that's right. far as we know and hope. Yes. So I, 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 I forgive him that. Yeah, so do I. And in fact, I mean, the, the, the cobalt bomb isn't his own fantasy. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that was dreamed up by, you know, the likes of Edward Teller mm. in the 1950s with the idea that you would create a, a device, a doomsday device, basically, that was so powerful that it could obliterate everything. And effectively, that's what the cumulative nuclear arsenal is. You know, we have so many nuclear weapons and they are capable of laying the entire world waste mm. and leaving nothing. Uh, so in some senses, it's it's not completely out of out of this world to dream up something that exotic to convey the the firepower available on uh, on on all sides. He's taken he's taken natural literary liberties with mm. uh, with this subject in order to dramatise them, but it had you know it did have an immediate impact. You know this book sold four million copies. Uh, it raced to the top of the American bestseller list. It knocked Peyton Place off the top of the New York <laughs> Times bestseller list. It put uh, the defining and most confronting issue of the age into uh, popular parlance and created an accessible text with identifiable characters, characters that you could empathise with. So in that sense, I think it's a, it's a real literary triumph that deserves acclamation. And they sent copies to world leaders they too. They did, they did. They sent it to John F. Kennedy. They sent it to, uh, to a number of US military leaders who all contributed um, cover notes to it. And we know that it was read by Winston Churchill, um, who said that uh, he... What did he say? He said something like he he'd read it at, um, uh, on holidays, oh. and he said something afterwards. He was with he was with Lord Beaverbrook, and he wrote in his diary, "I think the Earth will be destroyed by a cobalt bomb. I think if I were the Almighty, I would not recreate it." Oh. And I, I can recall um, just the the the, uh, the impact that the movie had upon mm. me, and reading the book. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was a teenager, and it's not the right time to read no. those sorts of things. And um, that the movie itself, when it came out, uh, that was also screened for servicemen, yes, and, yes, and, and politicians, and kings, and, and it was the first American film to be sold, seen in the Soviet Union. Mm. 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 They even screened it in like um, Little Antarctica. They did, yeah, base yeah, out down yeah. There, which is a sort of long tradition of screening. Um, <laughs> terribly inappropriate <laughs> films down there before winter, uh, nuclear winter mm. in this case. Uh, they show the, um, the thing from another world and yeah, The Shining right, right. and all those things you don't want to see in an isolated base. Uh, and whenever I watch the film and read the book, I go on this little nihilistic, awful pilgrimage yes. uh, um, around of movies, uh, Threads, The Day After, Doctor Strange, yes. The Bedford Incident, uh, Failsafe and so on. Uh, and there's also a, another novel that's very similar mm. to On the Beach, um, and it's, it's actually equally brilliant in its own right. Uh, it's called The Last Ship. Right. It's by an author called William Brinkley. Right. Uh, it has been fairly inadequately adapted as a, a television series where they don't use uh, nuclear war as the, um, the main thing, but it's a plague. Right. Because that's sort of like flavour of the month kind of yes. thing. Yes. Uh, but I recommend that one too. If you're really in that sort of nihilistic, horrible mood, the original title of On the Beach was The Last Day, mm-hmm. and in fact he took the um, he took the uh, the title from, as you said before, the the naval naval parlance for being on leave or uh, or on or on shore, mm-hmm. but also the lines from T. S. Eliot's The Hollow Men, which finish with the line, "This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper." Mm. 
Well, I'd like to say that there is still time. We're not in those end times yet. Um, but we're always just a few mm. minutes away from yes. that midnight hour, I think. Yes. So, Someone in a missile silo dropping a cup of coffee on their console. Yeah, well, it's things like that have mm. actually yes. been the, uh, the almost genesis of uh, Doomsday. Um, thank you for coming in, Gideon. Pleasure, I really Rob. enjoyed... I suppose enjoyment is... <laughs> it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> relative half-lives and so on. Uh, so I, I, if you have never read um, Neville Shoots on the Beach, you, you do owe it to yourself. Mm. Uh, it's just as relevant now as it was back in the day. Yes. Um, I don't know if we'd cope with uh, looming deadline so well as the characters do no, no, now, do you? No, no. there is a certain sort of uh, nobility about them which is very affecting. And I must say that, as you as you were saying before, I don't think I've ever been able to reach the end of On the Beach without a mm. tear in my eye. Yeah. It's like um, I think we'd be doing it more with selfies, a great deal more selfies, <laughs> you know, and a lot less dignity. Yes. The Black Mirror kind of scenario. I do notice mm. that Neville Shute has a, a cheeky a cheeky cast to him in, in, in the book. Uh, one of the first things he does is that he eliminates newspapers. It, it's interesting. <laughs> and in fact, when I read it, the draft, he wrote several drafts of the novel. Yeah. And in the early drafts of the novel, there are endless complaints about newspapers, about mm-hmm. how terrible <laughs> newspapers are. And fortunately, he stripped most of them out by the time he reached the final draft. Yeah. And they, they are actually completely extraneous to his narrative. It's almost though he had to work off this indignation about something he'd read in the newspaper before he could, uh, he could see the project through. Otherwise, it's an extremely lean book. Mm. There's just... there's. Virtually no flesh on the on the bones. Uh, it's told entirely in Ford time. Um, he wrote it over the period of six months. You know, he he dated the first page of the manuscript and he dated the last page, and it's it's a six month period. Oh, where is the manuscript? By the it's way, it's in the it? National Library, okay. along with the manuscripts of several of his other novels, which I which I looked at. He was a very clean writer. Uh, he typed everything. And he typed multiple drafts and he'd incorporate the edits from a previous draft into the, into the next draft. But, you know, he was a very, um, a real artisan. You know, he worked very hard on his material. Yeah, you can say that. And as, as I was saying before, you know, he was an engineer by background. Mm. Uh, he was not, he didn't regard himself as a great creative artist. He regarded himself as someone doing an honest job of work. And I think in some ways a more sophisticated novelist might have made a bit of a pig's ear of a subject yeah. like this. It actually needed a very, very plain, very straightforward, very forthright treatment. We might have been treated to, you know, purple prose, yeah, and more yeah. lyricism than the simplicity. It's In a way, it's like Hemingway. Yes, yes. Yeah. And there's no escape any yeah. more than there is an escape from the scenario he's created. You just reminded me of a <laughs> an amusing piece in the novels during the, uh, the carnage car race. Yes. And... Uh, they talk about a, a car that's been cobbled together with a, an aero engine. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's it's just totally undescribable and too yes. dangerous to drive, yes. and so it proves. Yes, and, and actually one of the most sophisticated allegorical scenes that Shute ever wrote, this idea of mankind lashed to these powerful machines that it can no longer control yes. that are simply uh, bent on its 
on their on humanity's destruction. But embracing them. But embracing them, throwing yeah. themselves at them, yeah. and in, and sort of enjoying it. Mm. Well, I, I won't say that you will enjoy reading on the beach, but I think you should, everybody mm. out there, because. This is the sort of reality that you you look at if you just sleepwalk into this. Mm. It's, um, it's game over, basically. All right. Well, again, thank you okay, to Rob, pleasure. Gideon Haig, who's written the introduction to the new edition of Tex uh, Publishing's On the Beach. So it's out now in hardback. In hardback, and very handsome too. <laughs> is there is it? Are there any illustrations in it? I, I haven't had no, a chance. No, but to... Chong's done a nice cover. Oh on yeah, it, and it's a kind of a facsimile reproduction. So it's got the uh, it's got the antiquated font, mm-hmm. uh, but it um, it's a very handsome artifact. So do not buy it in Kindle. Mm. And it will outlast a nuclear war as long as it's not exposed <laughs> to the actual blast, because an EMP cannot indeed, render it useless. Indeed. Uh, and um, we're going to have a track now. The uh, the Stanley Kramer on the beach movie plays the classic waltzing Matilda mm. tune about five thousand mm, times. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, you're never in any danger of not realising where you are. No. And um, I thought, well, I could play one of the ones out of that, or I could play another version of waltzing Matilda that I'd heard recently that also made me weep. Uh, and this is by Reinhold Heil and John, Johnny Klimek, and it's from the uh, the Deadwood movie, ah. where they played in context of Al Swearengin, right. uh, who spent five years in Australia at the goldfields, apparently, right. which was the worst <laughs> bleep five years he ever <laughs> spent. A waste of five <laughs> years, he says. So thanks, Gideon. Yeah, pleasure, Rob. Triple. Hi, my name is Greg McLean, director of Wolf Creek and Rogue. You are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. Yeah. Oh. Reinhold Heil and Johnny Klimek with their interpretation of Waltzing Matilda from the Deadwood the movie played today in honour of the uh, republication of Neville Shoots on the beach from text. Now, I would really like to lift the mood after our visit upon the edge of nuclear annihilation. But unfortunately, we've had a uh, patch of Star Trek-related deaths. And... I wanted to um, just sort of commemorate the passing of, or memorialise them, actually, more to the point. Um, Robert Hudson Walker Jr., born in 1940, died on December 5th this year. American actor who will be very, very familiar to television watchers in the 60s and 70s. Uh, actually, the, um, the oldest son of um, actors Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker. So he was in a lot of um, movies uh, like Ensign Pulver in 1964, the John Wayne movie The War Wagon in 67, uh, Kirk Douglas in that one too, uh, and also uh, in Easy Rider. But in his genre aspects, not only did he appear in uh, Son of the Blob in 1972, but he was the mutated, empowered young man, Charlie X, the title of that classic Star Trek episode in 1966 where he was given psychic powers 
terrifying psychic powers, a prototype Q, if you remember the character in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, almost omnipotent, uh, had to uh, be put down by the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, also appeared in the uh, a story in the Time Tunnel, another genre science fiction show, one of Erwin Allen's, and in the episode Billy the Kid in 1967, where he's... Um, uh, playing that actual uh, Western character. Uh, he was also in The Invaders, uh, the uh, the series about um, alien invaders, and an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. Robert Hudson Walker Jr., no longer with us, but immortalised in the television archives, as is Michael J. Pollard, uh, who was born in 1939 and just passed away on November 20th. Um, an American character actor who was in Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. Lots of other shows too, Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, and so on. But um, And strangely enough, he, uh, he played um, Billy the Kid as well, like uh, Robert Walker Jr. in uh, a movie called uh, Nine, Dirty Little Billy from uh, 1972. Um, I don't really want to mention the fact that he had what they would call a baby face, but he did, which meant that he could uh, go on playing younger characters for quite some time in his career, including an episode of uh, Lost in Space, where he played um, uh, Mr. Nobody, uh, sort of uh, a character imprisoned in a, an episode called The Magic Mirror, and behind a mirror too. But the one that we remember is another Mirror, uh, Miri is the episode in 66 of Star Trek, classic Star Trek, where he played, ironically, once again, circling back to our On the Beach discussion earlier on, um, he was a, a young teenager who was um, a survivor on a planet that had been devastated by a plague that killed every adult until the, uh, the Enterprise crew appeared to find a cure. So, yeah, Michael J. Pollard, no longer with us as well. But he was also in um, the movie uh, Roxanne, uh, playing one of the uh, the volunteer firefighters in that movie. Uh, you may have remembered him from American Gothic in 1988, where we played the actual villain in the horror movie. Uh, and more recently in 89, well, <laughs> relatively recently, um, he appeared as the uh, fifth dimensional trickster, the villain Mr. Mixpetikulk in the Superboy TV series back then. Uh, quite a few other t- things too, um, including we were talking about um, Armand Asante, who played Captain Towers in the On the Beach miniseries. Well, Michael J. Pollard was in um, um, The Odyssey, playing the role of um, Aeolus in that one. Uh, and he was in the um, 2003 Rob Zombie uh, House of a Thousand Corpses too. So he had quite a long-running career, did Mr Pollard, as well as being um, a Star Trek actor who is remembered for that role in the, in the genre, in the cult that is Star Trek. And finally, uh, on this one, you know, not to uh, lessen the impact of the deaths of those other f- familiar faces, um, René Arbert-Jeanois, who was Odo, Constable Odo, on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, playing the uh, the shape-shifting founder character, the Changeling. 
Uh, great actor. Saw him in so many things that it's actually hard to list them all. But I think I first saw him um, when he played Father Mulcahy in the uh, Robert Altman film MASH, the one that spawned the uh, long-running television series in 1970. But after that, I saw him in the sitcom. Um, playing the uh, the title character in um, Benson, <laughs> so he had such a, a long, wide range. He he was a voice actor in so many different things and uh, reading audio books, um, and I, he just uh, had been in everything that I can possibly remember <laughs> from uh, from back in the day. So, including um, Boston Legal as well. I think he was one of the senior partners in um, in the firm. So circling back there to uh, William Shatner's um, turn on that. So René Abergenois has passed on to um, June the 1st, 1940 to December the 8th of 2019. Um, I think uh, we might um, save a track for him for later for uh, another episode of Zero G Uh, but at the moment just to let you know what else is going on Hello, my name's Sylvester McCoy I play Doctor Who number 7 and you're listening to me and you're also listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM Ooh Ooh (laughs) Well, that sounds great I'm going to have to tune into that myself um, yeah, I like the uh, the sound of that 1960s uh, uh, clip there from um, Marvel uh, Comic Heroes. It's a series uh, of different uh, animated episodes, very first um, Marvel animation, or at least well, maybe I can uh, sort of fudge that with some earlier stuff, but there you go. All right, that's about it for Zero G today. Uh, we've got... Um, Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying The Mandalorian on Netflix. Uh, the fifth episode has um, dropped. Uh, I won't talk about that um, this week because it's too fresh in your mind. So uh, next week we may, may have a chat. Megan McHugh, our co-host, will be back next week. And we will be having an interview, I believe, with um, uh, Elsie, sorry, Elise Hurst who's illustrated uh, Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which um, I'm really looking forward to reading and looking at the pictures very soon. Thank you to Gideon Haig from Text Publishing coming in and talking about uh, the new edition of On the Beach, which he's written the introduction to, and also to Elizabeth McCarthy, our talks producer, for helping arrange that Interview. Now, we're going to go out with a track which is sort of reminiscent of The Mandalorian. It's uh, from the Kurosawa film The Seven Sar- Samurai, the first movement from that by uh, Fumio Hayasaka. And this is uh, from the uh, original score, for, or at least at least from a, uh, a version of that uh, set up for a concert performance. And, of course, The Mandalorian um, has done at least one episode referring to the seventh samurai homaging to it that's it for zero g today over and out g'day this is rob jan thanks for listening to the podcast at triple r zero g a weekly radio show exploring science fiction fantasy and historical zero g is broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every monday 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.